please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're picking up today in verses 15 through 25, and I'm just going to trundle right on through. I'm not going to preach on Memorial Day. Um, I think that you can get all you need about that uh, from other places. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a great passage of scripture, and it continues the story. It's not a second uh, account of creation. It's basically delving down and explaining what took place in chapter 1. So Genesis 2.8 is a kind of summary statement. 2.8 says this very clearly. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And then in 9, all the way through the end of the chapter, he tells us what took place. There were just multiple trees in the garden. They were all beautiful and pleasant to the sight because God is a God of beauty, and we even sang about that. (laughs) Thank you for those, you know, Lutheran hymns. I teased Tracy because she comes from a Lutheran background. So every once in a while she slips this stuff in. But, you know, we're blessed. Those are... I don't know if you saw the difference between the words of those hymns and some of the words of contemporary ditties. They seem to be a little bit deeper, and they praise God. Um, they even brought lawyers in there, and, you know, uh, interesting. But anyways, I digress. Let's, let's keep, keep going here. What he created brought pleasure to the man and the woman, to the senses of those he created. And that, again, I'm sorry, it said he is a God of art. The God of art. This is good. The creativeness that we have as human beings is part of the image of God that he's instilled within us. But among all those beautiful trees, there were two that were specifically singled out. Even more emphasis is given to them because they're in the center of the garden, in the midst of the garden, it says. Now, the first one that we want to look at is the tree of life. The fruit of the tree of life, if eaten regularly, would enable people to live forever. Even people who were mortal and dying, according to Genesis 3.22. 
The implications post-fall after Adam and Eve's sin was that if the couple were allowed to stay in the Garden of Eden and were to eat the fruit from the tree of life, they would live forever in their state of estrangement from God. And so it was a divine mercy that God took the man and the woman, placed them outside of the Garden of Eden and protected it. He determined to bring them outside the garden. And at the east end, he stationed cherubim. That's the plural for these mighty angels. And a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life so that they couldn't get to it. You should not fail to remember that in Revelation 22, 2, there's a scene from the new heaven and the new earth. And in the new Jerusalem, we read that there's a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb, and in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Let me just elaborate just a little bit. That's, that's the end of the book. We're at the beginning of the book. There's a tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, and in the New Jerusalem, there is a tree of life on either side of the stream of the waters of life. It's a new creation in which there is no more tears, there, there's no more death, there's no sorrow, there's no crying, there's no peer, uh, pain or fear or, or sin or evil of any kind. Just read Revelation 21. But there will be unending fellowship with God and everlasting newness of life and unimaginable beauty, unbroken unity between the saints of God, fruit from the tree of life, and water from the river of life. That's the future. That's what God has prepared for us. And the reason I can say with absolute confidence that there will not be any who are unclean or those who practice abomination or those who lie, no people like that will be in the holy city, the New Jerusalem. And I can say that with certainty because their place is in the lake of fire, not the New Jerusalem. We can know this because God's word describes how he will make the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21.5. He declares, behold, I'm making all things new. So evil, that kind of evil and wickedness, is part of the old. It's past. And God did away with it in his uncreating of the old heavens and the earth. And especially because Revelation 21.8 implicitly declares, but the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and the murderers and immoral people and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So they're not going to be in the New Jerusalem. They're gone. The statement comes directly before God's revelation of that holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Nope. No one that will defile will be in the new heaven and the new earth, for all has been done away with and confined to the lake of fire. Even death is thrown in there. This is, this is good news. This is good news. Not for those who do not repent and don't have a relationship with God. So next we read in Genesis chapter 2, going back to Genesis chapter 2, that God put humanity on probation. He gave man a test. 
And we see that in verses 15 through 17. He tells them, you know, of this one tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat, you should not eat, because in the day that you eat, you will die. So you've got the, the tree of life, and you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3.6 informs us that the tree was also good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes. That's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the fruit shouldn't be construed to have contained some toxic component that brought such devastation to the first couple. That sounds like somebody's vain imagination when they read these verses. Ah, must have been poison. No. It was like the other trees. It's just that God had put a prohibition that man should not take or eat from that tree. Rather, there must be some relation to the first command God gave to Adam concerning this specific tree. If the man disobeyed God, thereby displaying independence from his creator, from the will of God, then the man would thereby have the experience of evil from within himself. He would be the one taking and eating from that tree in disobedience to God's clear prohibition. He would die. In the sense that he'd become separate from his creator. Death means separation. Always. In the very source of his physical and spiritual life. And in that way he would experience evil for himself. The good man was already experiencing daily. As he fellowshiped with God in the Garden of Eden. And with his wife, Eve. And it would only be through his disobedience that he would experience evil firsthand. Now, I'd like to put a slide up, if you guys have it back there. I want to talk about the fourfold state of man, because it's helpful for us to understand these things. It's helpful to turn to Augustine. He's the one that kind of came up with this little paradigm to start with. And it shows mankind and the various states of man regarding sin. Augustine argued that there are four states which are taken from the scripture that correspond to the four states of man in relation to sin. So we start out with man, Adam and Eve, were able not to sin, but also able to sin. In their state of original righteousness or innocence, they are able not to sin, but they also had the capacity to sin. You could say that they had free will, unencumbered free will. And then after their sin, they were unable not to sin. They were bound by sin. That's the present unregenerate person. Sin, 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 sin. That's all unregenerate people do. They are unable not to sin. But then... In his great mercy, he provided a way out for us, the forgiveness of our sins. So the third state of man that Augustine identified is man who is able not to sin. Once again, he's able not to sin. Bondage to sin has been broken through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, the fourth state of man that Augustine identified was the state in which Mankind is unable to sin. We will be free from the presence of sin and in our glorified state forevermore. So the fourfold state of man, the first state of man is in his innocence, his original innocence or original righteousness, and that was before the fall. The second state is the natural man after the fall. Everybody born, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, that's the natural man. 
That's where everybody is. The third state of man is the regenerate man as a redeemed person. A redeemed one that now sin and the bondage to that sin has been broken, so he's free. He's free to go ahead and not sin any longer. And the fourth state is the glorified man, and that's the eternal state in heaven. So God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them, and he was given dominion over the entire physical and biological creation. But unto whomever much is given, of course, much will be required, Luke twelve forty-eight, And the triune God had existed from eternity without men, didn't need mankind, but he created men, so why would he create him? Why did God create man? Apart from divine revelation, it's impossible to answer that question, but God has revealed it to us. God has given us such revelation as assures us that God is a God of love. God is love. And that he loves all people. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Man was created at God's will and according to his good pleasure. And he intends to demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace on man's behalf through the ages to come, according to Ephesians 2.7. But love is a reciprocal relationship. You can't have love with an inanimate object, although probably today there's many that do and want to get married to them. I don't know. You know, it, it... All bets are off now, so we might have people marrying rocks for all we know. Love that is unrequited is one of the greatest tragedies of human experience. For love to be expressed in all its fullness, there must be mutual love, each for the other. And a perfect creator could hardly be satisfied with an imperfect love relationship. So when Adam and Eve chose with their free will, to sin against God, rebel against him, and do the very thing he prohibited them from doing, they were showing a lack of love towards their creator. And God created man with purpose to bestow his love on them, and his purpose must have also included a mutual and reciprocal love on their part toward him. But love, by its very nature, must be voluntary. You cannot force somebody to love you. If men and women are to really love God, they must be able to choose of their own will to love God in response to God's love for them. But such freedom allows for the possibility of man not loving God back, not reciprocating. Here, here's the crux of the matter. In original innocence or original righteousness, Adam and Eve in the garden, they, they were free to love God, right? We, we took that down. That's okay. They, they, they were... As we said, they were um, able not to sin, but they were also able to sin in that original righteousness. So they could choose in that, that wonderful free will that they had, they could choose to not love God. And that was their freedom. And therein is man's moral choice before him. And that's what God laid out for him. One commentator said this, quote, Unless we know everything, we only know relatively. And unless we know comprehensively, we cannot know absolutely. 
And therefore, only God in heaven, who transcends time and space, has the prerogative to know truly what is good and bad for life. Thus, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents knowledge and power appropriate only to God. And human beings, by contrast, must depend upon a revelation from the only one who truly knows good and evil. But humanity's temptation is to seize this prerogative independent from God. That's what he promised. That's what the serpent promised them. And we'll get into it in chapter 3. But they wanted to be independent from God. They removed themselves from a trusting relationship with God who is the only one that could know good and evil perfectly because he's God. And instead, they wanted to experience it themselves. It was a failed test. They failed the test. And we know that Adam and Eve, when confronted with that moral choice, chose not to love their creator. They failed. They failed their moral test at loving God enough to obey his one prohibition. You know, kids, listen to me. It's important that you obey your mother and father. Because as you obey your mom and dad, you're learning how to have a relationship with your creator, God. And if you're always pushing against your mom and dad, you're going to push against God too. And so you need to humble yourself and stop being so proud and fighting with your moms and dads when they tell you something to do and just humbly do it and thank them for telling you. Because just like God, mom and dad know more than you do. You're just kids. You're growing up, right? And so mom and dad know more than you do, just like God knew more than Adam and Eve did. But Adam and Eve said, fooey on you, I'm going to go my own way and do what I want to do. They failed the test. So it's up to you children, are you failing the test with your mom and dad? Because if you're failing the test with mom and dad, you're going to fail it with God. Does that make sense to you? Nod your heads, kids. Yes, yes, makes sense. I'm putting it on a little shelf for you to grab hold of, okay? Because it's important. Now, you might say, well, I want to do good, and I want to obey them, but I always blow it. I always fail. I always... That's okay, as long as you admit it, because that should drive you then to your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you say, please, help me, Lord. Help me to be obedient. And as you begin to cultivate that dependence upon Jesus to help you to live, you will come into a place of regenerate state where you actually have Jesus Christ living inside you, helping you. But moms and dads have been given to you to help bring you to God. That's important. You must understand that. So it's here at this juncture that the grace of God is displayed in his manifold love in that God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if, we were, if while we were yet sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. God made a way for our first parents, though they sinned, to be brought together with him again through the coats of skins. We'll get to that in chapter 3. And God has made a way for us, who are sinners, to reconnect with him, even though we've sinned, through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. 
These things fit together like hands in a glove. And all the rest of the Old Testament just shows us this lesson over and over and over and over again. Man is sinful and needs help. God is loving and merciful and provides a way out. Man must humbly admit they're sinful and run to God. God lovingly and mercifully receives them. Over and over and over, all the narratives point to that. So, God's prohibition on only one tree was certainly a test of Adam's willingness to submit to God's authority. God has authority to command man by virtue of his position as sovereign creator. God created man, so God is over man. I often say it's creator, creature. Okay, we don't like to be called creatures because we're proud. <laughs> but we are. We're, we have a creator and we're beholden to him. We're under his authority. And so God gave the command, the prohibition to Adam, and he had every right to do that. He has authority to command man by virtue of his position as sovereign creator, but also by virtue of his perfect righteousness, whereby he can be trusted. And he has infinite knowledge of what Adam's ultimate best was, just like mothers and fathers know what the ultimate best is for their children. But how much more so God and his creatures that he's created. He said, for in the day that you eat, you will surely die. Verse 17. When God revealed his will to Adam, he communicated what was right and what was wrong. He did communicate to Adam and Eve. Thus, Adam's choice was a moral one. He'd either obey God's command or he would assert his own will and rebel. Now, the consequence of Adam's choice was a matter of life and death. Obedient behavior, which springs from trust in God, results in blessing, good, and life. Okay? Obedient behavior. It's the same with us in the Christian life. Obedient behavior brings blessing. Conversely, rebellious behavior, the offshoot of an independent heart, results in evil and leads to judgment and death. When we sin, we are not separated from God in the same way. We're separated from that that familial uh, relationship, that joy of our salvation. And that is the Spirit of God bringing us back to an obedient, humble state before God. That's what happens when we sin. We don't get X'd out now. We don't have a relationship with God. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. No. It's the old school bus. If you get on it, you'll get to school. It's the escalator. If you get on the escalator, you're going up. Even though you turn around and start going down, that's sin in the Christian's life. You're still moving up. And you will reach the top. However, you might get spanked pretty hard by your loving father but you will reach the top. The biblical term for violating God's revealed will is sin. And sin always produces death. Separation, Romans 3.23. And we'll really get into this in chapter 3. You know, I was looking at, this is part 3. I don't know if you've noticed, it's been the same outline for three weeks. It's part, I, I can't help it. I can't help it. And I don't know what we're going to do in chapter 3, because that is just so full So, let's jump ahead to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Notice it's the Lord God, Yahweh, 
Elohim, okay, that personal relationship, and he looks at man, he says it's not good for him to be alone. Up until this point, everything has been good. But for the man to be alone, it's declared not good. Now here's some fighting words for some. The following verses to the end of the chapter show us that the woman was made for the man and she was made from the man and given to the man. So right there, I've probably offended some and I don't care because this is what God's word teaches. And if you have issues with this, it's probably because you don't understand what these words mean. A helper suitable for Adam. In all of God's creation, there was no creature that was suitable for Adam. This immediately elevates the woman to a much higher plane than the rest of God's creation. We are not animals. We are human beings. She is in a class all her own as a woman. God would create the woman separately for a very specific purpose and for a very specific person, Adam. That elevates the status of woman. Now, God prepared Adam for Eve. Look at 19 through 20, and you can see that out of the ground, God formed all the creatures and so forth, and he ran them past Adam. This is so genius, and and we took a, a page out of God's book with the Taliabo, and we taught the Taliabo. God was creating an anticipation and an eagerness and a hunger for a helper suitable for him. How merciful and loving is God? Sees the man alone. Adam probably didn't even know he was alone yet because he didn't have anything to compare it to. And God runs all these animals past him, and Adam names every animal. Every animal that Adam names, that is its name. That is a very, very godlike quality, right? Naming things. And he named all the animals, and yet in the end, there was not a helper that was suitable found in all those creatures. One commentator says, it doesn't say this, but I'll bet you anything, they went past him in pairs. And I would, I would have to probably agree with that. Again, heightening his, his sense of, where's my other? I'm alone. It's, it's so beautiful the way God did this. Adam was created in the image of God, and he needed a companion that was suitable to him. And it's not a second creation of animals, but merely a reiteration of their origin. And then the main point being made in the midst of all of them, none were found suitable to Adam. And as the animals prayed it before Adam, it intensified the fact that this man was alone. And God said that was not good. Verses 21 through 22, we find the way of God and the creation of Eve. Many try to posit the fact that Adam was being fashioned from the earth as evidence that there's a link with evolutionary theory there. No, that's wrong. That's conflating something with a vain imagination. But in the case of the creation of Eve, they get completely stumped because she's taken out of the man. She's not taken from the earth. He is taken from the earth. 
Neither Adam or Eve was a result of evolution, but rather of direct creative power of our creator God. 1 Timothy 2.13 reiterates this biblical fact. It says this, quote, For Adam was formed, then Eve. Adam was formed, then Eve. And in 1 Corinthians 11.8, it states, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Little prepositions, of. I mean, it preaches how long you could spend on just that little preposition of there. The woman God created for Adam would allow Adam to enjoy a relationship, fellowship, which reflected being created in God's image. If alone, Adam would not reflect the eternal fellowship enjoyed by the Trinity. The Trinity had relationship with one another amongst the persons of the Trinity. They spoke with one another. They planned together and they loved one another before the foundation of the world, before the creation of man. And the woman would also provide other image marks of God's reflection as she became Adam's companion in ruling, in relating to another. They related to one another. And in reproduction, Eve was a gift according to Genesis 3.12 and Proverbs 18.22. So be careful of pointing at the woman and saying, that's why we have all the problems in the earth. Never forget Mary teaching a a course, uh, the Chronicles of Redemption, uh, to a fairly uh, young person that was being drawn to the Lord. She had a pretty rough life, pretty rough life. And Mary read the story of Eve and sin, and she said at the end of it, what do you think about that, the story, you know? And this woman just shook her head, and she said, that darn Eve, she didn't say darn, Eve. And then she stopped, and she said, but I would have done the same thing. And Mary rejoiced, because, hey, it's getting through, <laughs> right? Conviction. But don't look at Eve as though she's the source of all things. If you look at the pronouns in a temptation, you'll find that Adam was right there with Eve, quietly standing by. Eve truly reflects God's image in her relationship with Adam as his helper. She is an azer. Azer. It's a Hebrew word used of God's very relationship with us. Look at Psalm 54.4. We're going to do a little bit of a Bible study here. Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper, Azer. It's the same word given to Eve. God is my helper, the Lord, Yahweh, is the sustainer of my soul. Now I want you to turn over to Psalm 86, 17. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Yahweh, have azered me. You have helped me and comforted me. You see, God is an azer. The woman is an azer. It's pretty amazing that that's her title, that that means she's suitable to the man, to be a helper to the man. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, 
for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All of these are the same word that God used for the woman as a suitable helper for the man. To be a helpmeet to the man is not second-rate job. It's not second-best. It's not being a doormat to be walked on or, or less of a prestigious role. Oh, the man's the leader and I'm just the helper. <laughs> not when you study the word azer and if you believe the Bible. It is a high calling and it reflects the truth that she is to be honored as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And in, in 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, when men don't honor their wives in that capacity, their prayers are hindered. So, you know, men, God not answering your prayers, that might be a reason why. Does it feel like your prayers are going up, hitting the ceiling and dropping down and not being answered? This may be why. Honor your wives. The woman took Adam's breath away. When he brought her to Adam, this is so cool. <laughs> and I had a Hebrew prof. He, he was just an insane guy. His, his capacity for the Hebrew language was just like out in the far reaches that uh, Glenn was talking about. Other galaxies far away. This guy was so brilliant, right? But he's also a down-to-earth rancher from Wyoming. And... Uh, He'd come in and he'd read us a portion in Hebrew and he'd tell us every time we got in class, now I'm going to read you a portion in Hebrew and I'm going to tell you that not knowing the original language is like kissing your bride through a veil. And then he'd read a passage and this is one that he, he talked about. So it says in verse 23, after God brought the woman to man, it says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That is not how it reads in Hebrew. It's an exclamation. It's like, wow! Now this, this is woman. He was staggered at her. This, this time, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This shall be called woman, for from man was taken this. The identification of Eve as woman, shows another direct correlation with the man. Because the Hebrew word for man is ish. I-S-H. Ish. And for woman, her designate is isha. I-S-H-A. Forever united. Man and woman. Bone of my bone. Now, this one is like me. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. God established marriage. The implications are clear in verse 24. The gender pronouns make it unmistakable that the first marriage was between a man and a woman. And the pro, uh, the, it, it points to the future saying that men would leave their fathers and mothers. Again, a distinction in marriage between a man and a woman. Father, mother, okay? And would cleave to his wife. 
to leave or forsake the parents is to, to be taken in a relative sense, not in a literal sense. You don't discard your parents. In the Hebrew families, new, uh, the new couple would often live with one or the other family for a time as they began their life together. But what it implies to leave and cleave is clear that a new relationship has begun and, and one where the man's relationship with his parents has been exchanged for life with his wife now and vice versa. It's a new family that has begun. And yet all the familial responsibilities of love and honor and respect remain in place. We are to honor our parents. But the relationship of nurture and submission and companionship has now changed and transferred to the new couple. This is a marvelous thing. I love doing weddings. I just love it. To cleave means to stick to like something glued together, inseparable. That's why divorce, God hates divorce. Take two pieces of paper and glue them together. Okay? Now, I want you, after two days to take the corners of those pieces of paper and try to take them apart. What happens? Both get ripped. Both get ripped. God has told us. He's, he's tried to warn us. And I know I'm talking to some divorced people here, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm not pointing my finger in judgment at you. I'm just saying God has warned us. So those of you in relationships that are maybe going through a rough time, go through the rough time with God. Stay married. Stay married. Marriage is forever. Yet all the familial responsibilities, the love, honor, and respect still go to parents. Now the role of headship, quickly turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11. Think of this in light of headship. 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Man is the head of the woman. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Again, fighting words in our in our culture. But this is God's word. And maybe we need to delve a little bit deeper and understand what that means, that the woman was created for the man's sake. Verses 11 and 12. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Here's the interdependence, that relationship, ish and isha, that, that they have as one another. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. It all goes back to God anyways. Elizabeth Elliot comments on the role of headship. And I, I, I just, I need to quote this. It's from The Recovery of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, that's a book. It's a tome. And in our gender-confused era, it would do well if you had that on your shelves. The recovery of biblical manhood and womanhood. She says this, quote, What I see as an arrangement of the universe in the full harmony and tone of scripture, this arrangement is a glorious hierarchical uh, order of graduated splendor beginning with the Trinity, descending through seraphim, cherubim, archangels, angels, men, and all lesser creatures, 
a mighty universal dance choreographed for the perfection and fulfillment of each participant. Why must feminists substitute for the glorious hierarchical vision of the blessedness a ramshackle and incoherent ideal that flattens all human beings to a single level, a faceless, colorless, sexless wasteland where rule and submission are regarded as a curse and when the roles of men and women are treated like machine parts that are interchangeable, replaceable, and adjustable, and where fulfillment is a matter of pure politics, things like equality and rights. The first woman was made specifically for the first man, to be a helper, to meet, to respond, to surrender to, and compliment him. God made her from the man, out of his very bone, and then he brought her to the man. And when Adam and Eve, he accepted responsibility to husband her, to cherish her, to protect her. And these two people together represent the image of God. One of them, in a special way, the initiator, and the other, in a special way, the responder. Neither one nor the other was adequate alone to bear this divine image. Elizabeth Elliot rocks. She understood. She also had like three or four husbands. They died though. So, understanding femininity. It's a biblical complementary. The man was created first to lead, to initiate, and the woman was made by God to respond to his leadership and his initiation just as a son responded to the father's initiative and plan. It was the father who decided to give Christ as a purchase of our redemption, and the son set his face toward Jerusalem to take up the cross. He fully affirmed his role as a son. He is not less than the father. To understand the feminine identity is to understand that femininity is a reality of God's design and making. It's his gift to women as a birthright. And even as Eliot said, it's his gift to men as well. And I might add, it is a woman's birthright, whether married or not. They are all first women with a feminine identity. So the woman has been created to be the receiver, the nurturer. And that's obvious. The desire to nurture, the desire to help, and to respond to needs is in the deepest part of the woman because God created the woman to fill in the empty places to respond to need. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable, comparable to him. Secondly, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Now this is interesting. It's a foreshadowing that God often does. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come in chapter 3. In the original righteousness and innocence, the couple did not experience shame or guilt. Their nakedness is evidence of their complete vulnerability with one another and complete openness and trust toward one another. They stood naked before God and one another, and there was no shame because they had done nothing wrong. In the next chapter, chapter 3, we're going to see shame is directly linked with sin because the couple sinned, and we read in 3.7, the eyes of both of them were open. And they realized they were naked. Now, why on earth did God say that? Was there some sexual sin? No. No. Listen to me. They proceeded in an attempt then to cover themselves. 
But the nakedness was deeper than that physical thing because when God visited them and asked them why they ran away and hid from him, Adam answered. Now, this is after they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. God came to the garden. They ran and hid. And God said, why did, why did you run and hide? Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I'm sorry, Adam, you're covered. What are you talking about? Obviously, the nakedness was something deeper than just the covering. So Genesis 2 closes with a couple. Before their sin, being naked and unashamed, shame, guilt, and fear are all a result of sin. And we'll get into that when we get into chapter 3. Now I have to tell you, before I go into chapter 3, it won't be the same outline, but we're going to talk about identity because identity is such a problem today and how God identifies us and how people identify themselves and why they think they have the prerogative to identify themselves as something, as their most authentic selves, right? I can't, I can't go against myself. Yes, you can if it's not real. Who told you that was your authentic self? Well, I don't want to go there. I start sermon number two right here, so... Um, but it's, it's brewing, okay, and it's coming. So let's pray, and we'll go to communion. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and, and just the implications of it, Father. What to God that we could live in the roles that you've created us for, Lord, that men would be men and they would lead and initiate, and that women would be receptors and receive the leadership of their men joyfully, Humbly, Lord, and that there would be unity in our marriages, Father, because that makes for strong societies. Father, we confess we, <laughs> we use our own reasoning often, and Lord, we ask you to forgive us for that. Help us to return to the truths of your word and to humbly submit to you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.